Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. In fulfillment of my patriotic duty, I devoted this past month of July to a comprehensive study of the Declaration of Independence, that great charter of freedom on which, had I no other occupation to attend to, or hobby with which to beguile my time and pass my sweet summer days, I could happily meditate all the rest of my life. Few works, I'm convinced, are so engrossing, and none, at least in the secular, political realm, so weighty and significant as this. The short, powerful document in which the very essence of America and the exalted language of universal freedom is most eloquently and succinctly contained. Indeed, in an episode published earlier this month, to which I'll include a link in the show notes below, I explained just how the Declaration came to be, how the Committee of Five, of whom the distinguished yet low-born Benjamin Franklin was the eldest and most famous member, received its historic commission, how Thomas Jefferson, a much less famous and younger Virginia aristocrat, deemed, by the merit of his literary skill, primus inter Paris among a gathering of extraordinarily learned, talented, and literate men, produced his most celebrated work. How that celebrated work was then subjected to the fierce scrutiny of his fellow congressional delegates, to whose edits, like all authors, Jefferson grudgingly acquiesced. And the date, the 2nd of July, on which we all really ought to remember and celebrate the adoption of its final copy. A close and critical appraisal of the Declaration, line by glorious line, led me, naturally, to a renewed interest in its brilliant author, former President Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, around whom much controversy now swirls, has always been, for me, an object of enduring fascination. He's a complex, deep, varied, perhaps even inscrutable character, the very type to whom the curious and poetic are most attracted. Like Hamlet, like Cicero, like Alexander the Great, one examines him in an attempt more deeply to understand human nature, of whose blatant contradictions, moral shortcomings, and stark, inexplicable peculiarities we're all, in some degree, possessed, but only in our perusal of another, ever truly aware. Out of his mouth, from his divinely inspired pen, issued the strongest words ever written in defense of liberty, equality, and natural inalienable rights. By his forceful articulation of these grand ideals, the moral balance of the universe, all of a sudden, in the last quarter of the 18th century, shifted. All felt it do so beneath their feet. It was a veritable stirring of the plates, 
a ground swell of progress, self-government, humaneness, and individualism by which every single bone on earth was rattled. And yet, he was, until his last day, the proprietor of many slaves. Jefferson owned about 200 of them. Indeed, it was perhaps toward Jefferson that Dr. Samuel Johnson, the esteemed English lexicographer and essayist, directed his immortal and frankly debilitating quip, quote, How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? Question mark. End quote. <laughs> Jefferson was one such driver of Negroes, and, perhaps, if we're to accept the dubious claims of the geneticists, a sexual exploiter, or, more innocently, partner of at least one as well. I suppose it's for this reason that his vaunted Charlottesville estate, Monticello, has undergone some changes as of late. Efforts, really posthumously to censure the man, for whom a certain wealthy benefactor, echoing the woke clamors of the age, seems to have no real affection. My interest in Jefferson led me to read the entirety of his written works, ranging from his autobiography to his summary view of the rights of British America, to his notes on the state of Virginia, to his public papers, addresses, messages, replies, and most delightful of all, his copious letters. As I read through his voluminous work, of which, if it's something you're eager to get your hands on, the Library of America offers a superb and complete edition, I expected to witness, as I flipped through its nearly 1,600 pages, the waning power of Jefferson's pen. I feared as the dates marking his letters climbed higher and higher into the first quarter of the 19th century, he died in 1826, I'd no longer recognize the same dazzling brilliance of the young congressional delegate, the inimitable cadence of America's finest writer, the easy savoir-faire of the refined French diplomat, the shrewd sagacity of the Republican statesman, and the profound, if often unsettling, speculations of the venturesome deist. I knew, as a matter of history, that Jefferson, like his one-time rival, John Adams, was unusually long-lived, and, for this reason, I doubted that his intellectual vitality and oratorical prowess could be so forcefully sustained throughout all the years. I look at the withered intellects and the irascible manners of old men today, with whom, as a requirement of my day job, I have the misfortune of spending countless hours, and can't imagine those of former ages being much better. At the conclusion of my journey through Jefferson's letters, I found that I was most pleasantly mistaken. It seems that Jefferson's skill as a writer was, to borrow a word with which he's become synonymous, the one of which he didn't originally intend to make use, un- alienable. He simply couldn't dispose of the gift, the gift of eloquence, with which he was born 
and with which he died. It just so happened that my reading of Jefferson's final letters, the last of which was written less than a month before his death, on the 4th of July, it should be said, coincided with President Joseph R. Biden's erroneous announcement that he had cancer. That's why, the president said, I and so damn many other people I grew up with have cancer, and why, for the longest time, Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. Normally, a health announcement of this magnitude, by a sitting president, no less, isn't so breezily made. That, upon hearing it, no one believed him, ill speaks the trustworthiness and the mental integrity of the man, supposedly the most powerful in the world, from whom it was muttered. With a shrug of the shoulders and a trademark, come on, man, most people attributed the claim to an affliction rather cognitive than cancerous, dementia being the diagnosis on which most clear-sighted non-ideological people quickly settled. It should be noted, though, that all the popular psychologists and psychiatrists by whom the cognitive faculties of former President Trump were, in contravention of the Goldwater Rule, breathlessly diagnosed, have fallen quiet. It's an odd, unnatural silence among a group of professionals that's historically uninhibited from doling out diagnoses when, and only when, a Republican is in charge. As it turns out, thankfully, Biden had only a few non-lethal spots of melanoma removed prior to his taking office. At the time of this recording, as it happens, he's recovering from COVID, the Asiatic disease against which, four times over, he was vaccinated. The protection seems not to be as robust as one might have hoped. During his convalescence, a video was released by the president's office, in which a reptilian, unblinking Biden slurred through prepared remarks that were scrolling before him on a teleprompter screen. Unlike the last time he spoke on prompter, he avoided reading the stage directions. <laughs> End of quote. Repeat the line, you remember this. Uh, this might be an improvement, but we're still far away from literate, and still farther from competent. And, sadly, nowhere in the same universe as eloquent. It was about this time when I realized that the letters I was reading from Jefferson's oeuvre were written when he was the same age as Biden. Granted, these were written, not spoken works. I have no way of knowing if Jefferson, like Biden, would have slurred his words like an garrulous old drunkard, had he the occasion to speak them publicly. I tend, however, to think that he wouldn't. It could be that my partiality to Jefferson and my general dislike of Biden inclines me to think more favorably of the former, but the ground on which I stand, I think, is neutral, balanced, and above all, firm. Later in life, Jefferson complained, always in a courteous and self-effacing way, of a touch of cognitive decline. By the evidence of his simultaneous intellectual output, one knows not just how seriously to take him. 
He confessed that his cognitive faculties were slowing, his inimitable wit waning, and that his arthritic wrist, injured much earlier in life, made writing a painful and laborious exercise. And yet, at the same time, he was overseeing the construction of the University of Virginia, riding many miles on horseback, writing a profusion of letters, memorializing the achievements of his career, rhapsodizing over the moral precepts of Jesus, philosophizing about the fogginess of the Platonism by which the simple lessons of the Nazarene were being shrouded, and giving, above all, excellent advice to his fellow Virginian, now the president, James Monroe. And what is our president doing? <laughs> Toppling off a, an idle bike at a crossroads in Delaware. Uh, perhaps it's unfair to do so, but I want to contrast the eloquence of Thomas Jefferson at the age of 79 with the unintelligibility, inarticulacy, nay, illiteracy of Joe Biden at the very same age. First, a few passages from Biden. In highway that was accessible, my mother drove us, and rather than us be able to walk. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening? It had to put on their windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer, and why I can't for the longest time. Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. Their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy and klep the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> but these are bad guys. The, the uh, former general, I keep calling him general, but my, my, uh, the guy who runs that outfit over there, uh, I want to make sure we thank the secretary for all he's done to try to implement what we've just talked about and for recommending these two women for promotion. Thank you all. Governor, all men and women created by the go, you know the, you know the thing. The thing to which Mr. Biden, whether knowingly or not, was attempting to make reference was... The Declaration of Independence, that same Charter of Freedom of which Mr. Jefferson was the author. From Biden, the 46th president, we move to Thomas Jefferson, the third president. In a letter to John Adams expounding upon Calvinism and cosmology, Jefferson, the deist, says the following, quote, So Irresistible are these evidences of an intelligent and powerful agent that, of the infinite numbers of men who have existed through all time, they have believed, in the proportion of a million at least to one, in the hypothesis of an eternal pre-existence of a creator, rather than in that of a self-existent universe. Surely this unanimous sentiment renders this more probable than that of the few in the other hypothesis. Some early Christians indeed have believed in the co-eternal pre-existence of both the Creator and the world without changing their relation of cause and effect. 
that this was the opinion of St. Thomas, Aquinas, whom he proceeds to quote in Latin. He then offers his analysis of the logos, that ungraspable Greek term from which the Gospel of John derives its sublime power. Quote, Modern Christians build up a second person of their tritheism by a mistranslation of the word logos. One of its legitimate meanings, indeed, is a word. But, in that sense, it makes an unmeaning jargon. While the other meaning, reason, equally legitimate, explains rationally the eternal pre-existence of God and his creation of the world. Knowing how uh, incomprehensible it was that a word, the mere action or articulation of the voice and organs of speech, could create a world, they undertake to make of this articulation a second pre-existent being and ascribe to him, and not to God, the creation of the universe. He concludes his exegesis in the following way, quote, the truth is that the greatest enemies to the doctrines of Jesus are those calling themselves the expositors of them, who have perverted them for the structure of a system of fancy absolutely incomprehensible and without any foundation in his genuine words. And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all this artificial scaffolding and restore to us the primitive and genuine doctrines of this most venerated reformer of human errors. End quote. <laughs> Extraordinary. In recounting to Justice William Johnson the infamous Marbury v. Madison case, with which his presidency began, so many years removed from the episode at the age of 79, Jefferson, without a single material error, says, quote, Among the midnight appointments of Mr. Adams were commissions to some federal justices of the peace for Alexandria. Those were signed and sealed by him, but not delivered. I found them on the table of the Department of State, on my entrance into office, and I forbade their delivery. Marbury, named in one of them, applied to the Supreme Court for a mandamus to the Secretary of State, Mr. Madison, to deliver the commission intended for him. The court determined at once that, being an original process, they had no cognizance of it, and therefore the question before them was ended. But the Chief Justice went on to lay down what the law would be had the jurisdiction of the case to wit that they should command the delivery. The object was clearly to instruct any other court having the jurisdiction, what they should do if Marbury should apply to them. <laughs> A wonderful, concise recapitulation of one of the most significant Supreme Court rulings in all of American history, from whose establishment of judicial supremacy, I'm sorry, I mean judicial review, we're all still suffering today. Given to us by the man who lived through it and fought against it. Again, it can't be emphasized enough. Jefferson, 
long removed from office and without a well-paid team of writers and media consultants and social media experts at his behest, wrote these words with inkwell, mind you, at one side and candlelight at the other, at the age of 79. I don't think our current president could deliver a single, coherent, grammatically unobjectionable sentence without doing irreparable harm to the English language while on teleprompter. To hear him speak extemporaneously, now that's something altogether worse. It ought to be classified as a legitimate form of torture to which only the illiterate or the masochistic or both would willingly subject himself. If you respect yourself, revere the language, appreciate eloquence and relish brilliance, even in old age, ignore President Biden. Read President Jefferson. I hope you enjoyed this little essay of mine, different in form and in substance from those that I normally deliver to you. If, by my good fortune, it meets with your approval, please let me know. Send me an email at finnerinswake at gmail.com. You can visit my website by that same name and leave me a note. Uh, and in the meantime, please subscribe to this channel on which I urge you to leave a five-star rating. That lets me know that this content is worth your while. Aside from that, share it with friends. And I bid you farewell from Finnerin's Wake.